as Keegan said, uh, really every single Sunday we have teams upon teams upon teams of volunteers that make this thing run. And so those of you that are actively uh, involved here and participating in service at Firewheel, know that what you do is important. Know that what you do is you do it as unto the Lord, and that service is really part of our discipleship. It's part of our spiritual growth. It's part of the way in which God uses us to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, all of you that serve every single Sunday. You are loved. Genuinely. So uh, this morning, before we go in and get into uh, what we're going to cover this morning, uh, if you do have not picked up a sermon guide, by the way, if you want one of those, we'll go ahead and make sure to get those to you. But I also want to turn your attention to on the back side, so we made these things two-sided now. So on the back side, we're going to include some discussion questions every single week. So some things that you can utilize to be able to process through the message, and then also in your own quiet time, or if you want to do it with your small group and want to be able to process through and talk through some of the stuff that we covered then uh, those are going to be two-sided now. So the front side gives you an opportunity and space to kind of follow the outline, and then the back side has some discussion questions for you to be able to dive into. So um, would love for you to be able to take advantage of that. So if I've not had the pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina, and I have the opportunity to serve here at Firewheel as the interim pastor. We are really glad that you are here today, and I don't take it for granted every single Sunday being able to worship together and get to do uh, this and just get to utilize my gift to be able to communicate God's word to you and to be able to do that together as a family. And those of you who are joining online, we want to welcome you as well. So we are making our journey and our trek through the book of Ephesians, and today represents a transition in the book of Ephesians. Remember we said that the book is divided into two really nice parts. Really chapters 1 through 3, you get the doctrinal section where Paul is doing a lot of teaching. And then really in chapter 4, you now make a shift and Paul is going to start working out the application of the things in which he has been teaching the Ephesians as he's been reiterating some doctrinal concepts to them. And so today he's going to begin that transition to the more practical stage of things. So just as a means of a quick review of what we talked about last week. So last week we looked at the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers at the end of chapter 3. You might have heard a little bit about that today too. So Paul made three specific requests in this prayer. He prayed for the Ephesians believers that they would know the power of God, that they would know the presence of Christ, and that their perception or understanding that God loves them would be increased and that they would know the love of God. So I hope that you took an opportunity to be able to pray that and work through that this week and maybe pray it over somebody else as well as you inserted their name instead of you in there. And so hopefully that that was something you were able to partake of this week. And just a way of reminder, our one true statement from last week was that prayer recharges our depleted spiritual strength. So prayer recharges our depleted spiritual strength. So today we're going to focus on the topic of unity. Now this is kind of like a second part to what we did almost a couple weeks ago when we talked about discrimination that Paul was dealing with at, in the middle section of chapter 2. So if you've been with us, you remember that the church in Ephesus comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers. These two groups were enemies of each other. They did not like each other. For a Jew to call somebody, they would call anybody who is a non-believer, they would call them a Gentile as a slang term, as a derogatory term. And so there was this kind of 
hostility that existed between Jews who are of Jewish descent because they saw themselves as the people of God, receiving the promise of God, which is true. But then Christ has made a way for the Gentiles now to be engrafted into that thing we call the church, the body of Christ now. That was the breaking down of the dividing wall in chapter 2, this dividing wall of hostility, which he, which he broke down in his flesh, the dividing wall of the law. Now that being said, you can see why this topic of unity would be important to Paul, because now that theologically speaking, discrimination and division has been dealt with, now you have to actually do life together, right? It's one thing on the theoretical side of saying, okay, we broke down this division, we agree Jesus broke this down, now let's actually get a whole bunch of people that are from different backgrounds, different upbringings, and all this other different stuff, let's get them all together and let's do life together and let's make that thing work. All right? So in case you didn't know, that's not necessarily easy to do. Amen? That's not easy to do. And so it wasn't easy for the, these first century believers as well. So Paul turns his attention to the topic of unity. So in honor of First Football Sunday, uh, we're going to have a running football theme actually that works through this message today. So uh, this is going to be fun. So Herman Edwards, former NFL head coach, and former ESPN analyst who is now the head coach of Arizona State University, he's a believer by the way, had this to say on the topic of teamwork at a press conference. I believe he said this when he was uh, coach of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. He said this, the players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of their helmet and not the name on the back of their jersey. So let me say that again, that's like, that's like tweet worthy right there, right? So. <laughs> The players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of their helmet and not the name on the back of their jersey. Now for a football team, what is, what is the thing that unites them, okay? They are to be unified by the team that they wear on the side of the helmet, the team that they play for. The team has certain goals, things that they want to do. They need to be united together in order to be able to win, okay? Players may have different thoughts about how the execution of the game plan may be. Coaches may even have different thoughts of what that may be. But they're unified together for the purpose of wanting to win, right? They take the field in order to win. They have a goal. They're going to score more points than the other team, all right? Now, they're unified in that goal for their team's sake. Now, in sports, those of you who are sports fans, how many of y'all sports fans and big football fans, right? In sports, we know that there are times that you have watched a game and you know that the better team did not win. And you do know that sometimes you watch a game and you say, you know that no, no matter how talented that team may be, that a person who's an individual who's part of that team may be a cancer in the locker room. We've ever heard that, that terminology before, right? The cancer in the locker room. And a, good, and a good team can be torn down by division within a locker room no matter how talented they are. I remember T.O. saying, I love me some me. Remember Terrell Owens, that saying, I love me some me? And Terrell Owens was a little bit of a, 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 little bit of a cancer in the locker room at times. But good teams were brought down by division no matter how talented they were. When we think about the church in general as the Big C Church, I'm going to talk about Big C Church today. When I talk about Big C, I'm talking about believers past and believers present, so all across the world, and then Little C Church being our local church, our local context. So when we think about the church in general, whether it's Big C or Little C, if there is a lack of unity, things begin to fall apart, and guess what? The devil loves to bring division right? The devil loves to divide. He separates. He loves to twist. He loves to get in there, and he loves to bring division. 
Before I actually give you our one true statement today, let me also give you a principle, a principle that's very fitting here because I want to I wanna take the term unity. It's a term that we use quite a bit, but I want to bring some framework to it because here's the principle. Unity is oneness of purpose, not oneness of thought. Okay? Process that with me. Unity is oneness of purpose. It's not oneness of thought. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity says we all think the same, we all do the same. Just think about kids who go to school with uniforms. They have a certain uniform ethic that they're supposed to wear, certain colors, and they may even have a store that is selected out where you go purchase the uniform. Okay? You go purchase this uniform, you are wearing the same thing as everybody else. There's uniformity. Okay? There's not individuality in that sense. So, Unity is not speaking to the fact that we all necessarily think the same, but we have a unifying goal that underlines, that's the glue that holds everything together, that we are working toward as one purpose, okay? And I think that we're going to bring that to clarity as we work through the text today. What is that one purpose for the, the church, big C and little c, as they walk in this spirit of unity? Here's our one true statement this morning. Christian unity is worth fighting for. In a church context... In a global context at times, church unity is worth fighting for. And Paul is going to make it very clear that this is something that is a supernatural kind of thing that only can happen. And it's the work of God to be able to bring these people together. And that it is something worth protecting and it's something worth fighting for and guarding. Okay? So our text this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first six verses. And we're going to see three things about unity this morning in a Christian context. So three things about unity in a Christian context. Let's start at verse 1. So the very first thing we're going to see is what I'm calling the calling of unity. The calling of unity. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Three important terms that are really come right to the forefront right in, in this verse. So Paul has already written chapters 1 through 3, and on the basis of what he has written doctrinally, he says, now I'm going to employ you. Therefore, I am making this urge and this calling to you to, number one, to walk. Now, to walk is Paul literally meaning one step in front of the other, right? Is he really talking about just like literally physically walking? No, it's a metaphor. When we talk about walk in the context of the Christian life, it basically means to basically walk in faith, right? And it's this idea of the way in which we live. When we walk, we are living in faith. Just like a person, when they walk, they're taking one step, they're moving. It's a movement, okay? It's a metaphor for life, that we are living and moving and walking and, and pursuing and doing life in a Christianly manner, okay? So that's the first thing he talks about. But then he says to walk in this manner that is worthy. Worthy means equal weight. I'm going to bring all these together in a second. So worthy means equal weight. And the calling, so what is this calling? He says, I urge you so to live your life in a manner of equal weight to the calling that you have been called. Well, this calling is a call to salvation. I think based upon the context, he's talking about the call to salvation. So if I could put it together, I'd say it this way. So a believer, for a believer, one's actions, their life, their walking, right, is to be lived according to the call of salvation that they received, like scales that are weighted that they would be in balance with one another. Y'all catching what I'm saying? So that our lives actually reflect 
that we live in a manner that shows that we actually live for Jesus, okay, the one who saved us, that those things end up being in balance. So the way in which we conduct our lives concerns both us personally, but remember, he's talking to a church. And it doesn't just affect you personally. As a believer, we have a responsibility to other believers as well in the context of the local church, in the way in which we walk our lives, in the way in which we live. Let me illustrate this for you. Going back to the football field, okay? So, if a football team is a unified group, then they rise and they fall together. So, what is the most common penalty called on a Sunday morning? Offsides or false start? One of those two, right? Either side of the ball, whether it's offense or defense, somebody's jumping too early. Guess what? The offensive lineman, if he's the one who's offsides, or he's the one who has the false start, the defense or the offensive lineman, it isn't that they just stand on the line and then everybody else goes back or moves forward, right? The whole team goes, right? The whole team suffers the consequence of the person being with a false start or being offsides. They are unified together, so they rise and they fall together. They are doing their part. They're working toward a common purpose. So when they are not jumping offsides, when they are not false starting, then they are not costing their team precious yards on the fields. Penalties kill teams all the time, right? So here's the reality, and let me bring this down to you, is that part of being in community and relationally connected as God intended within the local church we are strengthened or weakened at times when people do not conduct themselves in a way that reflects that they have genuinely been saved by Jesus. Not only that, it's that not only would they not conduct themselves that they have been saved by Jesus, but that they are not united to his purpose. This happens within the context of a local church, it happens in the context of denominations, it happens in the context, because relationally we are interconnected. What is the image that, that we use all the time when we talk about the church? It's the body, right? The body's interconnected, all of these interrelated parts that are working together as one whole. So the whole church suffers. The body works together, just like a physical body. If one part of you is injured or sick, that is felt in all areas of your whole entire body. The same can be said spiritually speaking. We are the body of Christ. We here at Firewheel Bible, uh, Firewheel Bible Fellowship are a local expression of the Big C Church, but we are a local body. We are the body that is called Firewheel Bible Fellowship. Together, we also can bring strength, but then also we can affect each other negatively as well as the body goes in health or in sickness. That is why Christian unity is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for, for the overall health of the body. God calls us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the sacrifice that he sacrificed for us. To walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. And I don't know about you, if Jesus gave his all and sacrificed his life, that means he is worthy of your total and complete allegiance. And Jesus is calling us to live a life not to play church. He's calling us to live a life that is totally sacrificed and living a sacrificial kind of humble life. You're going to start seeing some of these ingredients he's going to bring into living a life that is reflective of our Lord and Savior in service to one another. So that way we may be in health as the body of Christ. That's why Christian unity is worth fighting for. Let's look at the second thing. Look at verse 2. Now he's going to talk about what are some of those qualities of unity? What do they look like? 
What does it mean for us to walk in unity? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, these character qualities expand on and make put kind of flesh in some terms to what Paul was talking about, about living this life worthy in the manner, right? Now, notice every one of these character qualities are beneficial to others and are spoken in the context of others. So every one of these things would be a benefit to other people. Would you agree that if you're more patient with people, that'd be a good thing for you and for them? Would we all agree about that? Can we all use a little bit more patience in this world? Right? Yes, I agree to that. I am very impatient at times. So patience is a good thing. And so all of these different ingredients, you look at it, they're all different character qualities that speak of how we interrelate with other people. So what is humility? Humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Let me say that again. It's not to think less of yourself like, oh, woe is me, I'm so terrible, all this stuff, but to think of yourself less, to think about others. It's the opposite of pride, right? Gentleness or meekness, it's power under control. It's a beautiful character quality that, that Christ praises in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the meek. Right? It's one of these beautiful character traits of per people that are able to exhibit power under control. And it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. He talks about patience. Patience is the ability to remain calm while bearing a burden of oneself, that you are bearing that burden yourself, or bearing the burden of another individual. It's also a fruit of the Spirit. Paul's talking about these fruits of the Spirit. So fruits of the Spirit, that's a supernatural thing as well that God would produce these spiritual qualities in our lives. But then he kind of amplifies that by saying, bearing with one another in love, further defines patience. It's the idea of enduring with one another and to walk in forgiveness with one another. Now notice all of these characteristics. I don't think Paul is meant to be exhaustive, but all these characteristics, I liken them to ingredients in a recipe. Now, I was trying to think about like a food picture that would make you guys actually really your mouth water. And so I couldn't really come up with one, but I, I but so uh, I like fried rice sometimes. Y'all like fried rice? Who likes fried rice, right? Uh, I'm a Puerto Rican. I don't think I've seen any kind of rice that I don't like because I like rice. I'm a, I, I come from a rice-based culture, okay? But I think of these characteristics like ingredients in a recipe. Now, those of you who are good cooks like my wife sometimes know that you can replace an ingredient in a recipe and basically you have the same recipe. Or you can replace an ingredient and, you know, it doesn't manipulate the recipe in a way that doesn't make it non-recognizable. Let's say it that way. Now, last time I checked, if you want to make fried rice, you actually need rice. I know I just blew your mind right there, right? I mean, you kind of need rice. If not, you have something other than fried rice. You have fried something I don't want to eat. You have rice in it, then call me to dinner, all right? It's like trying to make a chocolate cake without cocoa powder or without chocolate chips. You ain't making no chocolate cake. Don't try to give me no vanilla cake and put brown food color in it and try to make it, pawn it off as chocolate. You ain't got no cocoa powder in there. You ain't got no chocolate cake. All right? Now, if you look at this fried rice, you can maybe do without the pineapple. If you don't necessarily like to taste the pineapple, you still have fried rice. Or maybe you substitute it with something else. But here's my point. 
is that if we wanted to cook up, for lack of a better word, if you want a recipe for Christian community, then all of these ingredients that he just mentioned are absolutely necessary. There are no substitutes. You need humility to live in relationship with other people. You need patience to bear with one another. You need to bear with one another in love. You need to be meek. All of these things are absolute core essential elements of a recipe. You don't have Christian unity and you certainly don't have Christian community without these things being evident. You can't substitute them. You can't put something else. You can't give more money. You can't hire more staff. You can't do all these different things. If you don't have these elements, then you are not going to have Christian community. Now, I don't think Paul's meant to be exhaustive here. He's not making an exhaustive list, but this is a really good start. And these are some things that are very difficult to walk out in interpersonal relationships. Now, uh, take a seat, breathe for a moment, and we're going we're gonna to get into a little, a little theology right now, okay, in a good way. By the way, theology is not a bad term. It just literally means conversation with God. Every time we open up the Bible, we're doing theology every Sunday. So now we're just going to go ahead and get a little bit, uh, we're going to get a little bit into it, all right? So let me be frank. There are things worth dividing over. There are things worth dividing over. Because as believers, we have to rightly divide God's word of truth. There is things that are true, and there are things that are error. Truth and error exist. We can see those realities, okay? There are some things that God says to be true, and there are some things that are out of bounds, if we say it that way. When it comes to theology, we call these essential doctrines or essential teachings, and then we have certain things that are called non-essential or non-essential doctrine, okay? What I mean by essential is that if you do not believe these things, you do not even enter into the stadium to play on the fields of Christianity. Going back to our football illustration, you get stopped at the gate. You get no entrance. You got no ticket. Let me give you a few examples. If you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, we call that the incarnation. You are not a Christian. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, you do not have a Savior who is a substitute for you as a representative of humanity to be able to make it to pay the price for your sin. This is something that the church has affirmed from the beginning. It's very clear in Scripture. Jesus came in the form of man. If you deny that reality, then you are not a believer. These are things that we call orthodox. Orthodox, all it means is right belief or right teaching. These are things that have been affirmed from the church from the very onset. These come that as we are working through the text, we see these in the letters of the New Testament. We see this throughout the, the doctrine of Scripture, but we also see these affirmed in some of the early church creeds as they work through things that were errant teaching. And they said, no, we're putting the pause on that. That is outside, that's outside of the lines, that's out of bounds. If we deny that Jesus rose from the dead, you are not a Christian. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. If you have a Savior who's in a grave, you don't have a Savior. Paul literally says we are to be most pitied amongst men if Jesus didn't raise from the grave because then everything that we believe is literally a lie. The resurrection is the very hinge point of Christianity. Without a risen Savior, you have a dead man. 
You ain't getting in. You outside the gate. Security has stopped you. You are not playing on the, on the field of Christianity if we deny that reality. If we deny the authority and inspiration of Scripture, if we just say, oh, the Bible's just a book written by a bunch of men, you know, it has some good teachings, Jesus taught a few good things, but it really isn't a way for me to live my life, or it doesn't really teach me certain things that are significant. It's no different than the Quran, or it's no different than whatever other ancient religious text you want to say. You cannot be a believer. Only the scripture is where we know about Jesus. The scripture literally tells us what we need to know about faith and practice. And if you look at this, just the three examples that I just gave you, Jesus coming in the flesh, the resurrection, the authority, and inspiration of Scripture. If you think of the opposite of these things, these are things that have been addressed throughout church history. The biggest heresies always center around who, the person who, work, who is the person of Jesus in his work. Some believed that Jesus was just a man. That puts you out of bounds. Some people still believe that today, right? That Jesus is just a man. He was a good moral teacher, but he's just a man. Some believe that Jesus was the firstborn and highest of creation, and that he was legitimately divine, but he wasn't eternally existing. So he was like a secondary God. Uh-uh. Uh, that puts you out of bounds. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld His, only, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He's always existed. The eternality of Jesus is a core central doctrine. You cannot deny Jesus didn't come into existence when He was birthed out of Mary's womb. He's always been, and He will always be. So there are things that if somebody were to come to me and say, okay, I'm a believer and I don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, I'd be like, mm, you're out of bounds. Sorry, we're not playing on the same field. There are other teachings in Scripture where there's a diversity of belief. Now let me, let me liken it to this way. It's like playing on the field, but you play within the boundaries. The boundaries are orthodox. So when you go on the field, on a football field, there still are lines that are out of bounds, right? But you can do whatever you want in those lines. You have certain freedom and liberty in those lines, but once you step over the line, then you're out of bounds. But these are things like, for example, when is Jesus coming back? There's three main views about when Jesus is coming back. It doesn't put anybody over the line. It doesn't say you aren't a believer, we're throwing you out of the stadium. It doesn't really matter in that way, but we do need to affirm that Jesus is coming back. How many of y'all believe Jesus is coming back? Amen, I believe that. Jesus is coming back. There's also different views on communion. There's about four or five different views, actually, on communion, what it means. That doesn't put somebody out of bounds and outside the realm of orthodoxy. They're still on the playing field. And then also there are def def uh, definitely differing views on the sovereignty of God in relationship to the free will of man. But here's my point. My point is that sometimes it is right to divide. Sometimes it's right to say this is truth and this is error. Sometimes we have to say, we have to acknowledge those things. But most of the time... When churches internally are suffering through conflict and strife as it relates to certain things, it's because in generally we have not walked in the fruit of the Spirit according to the characteristics that we just mentioned. Usually it's not something as significant as saying you're out of bounds doctrinally. But we are to display 
patience and humility with one another. And sometimes we do need to say, this is truth and this is error. That's why unity is so important to Paul. It is to be guarded for and fought, fought for at all costs. You notice something at the end of verse 3. Go back to verse 3. Look at this. I just noticed this this week. Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, something that's important is notice what is not said. Paul does not say that you create this spirit of unity. He says we are to maintain the spirit of unity, meaning we are to preserve it, we are to keep it, we are to sustain it. This is very important. It may seem trivial, but it's not. This is why this is important. Because unity is something that only Christ and being maintained by the Spirit can accomplish. This is a supernatural thing. Only Jesus can bring into his big family all these kind of different people and people who had different ethnic backgrounds. Only Jesus can bring together Jew and Gentile alike into this one big family. And the glue that holds them all together is the sacrifice of Jesus. The fact that he was died for their sins, that he rose, that he was buried again, and so, that he was buried and he rose from the dead. So all of that's the glue that maintains this, and it's maintained by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. So unity is something we preserve. It's not something we have to create in that way. We preserve it. We protect it. We make peace with one another. We make it a priority to not act selfishly for personal gain or honor. Our call is not to create spiritual unity, but rather to manifest a spiritual unity that is reflected within God himself. We're going to get to this. We are to manifest a spiritual unity that is reflected within the Godhead itself. We do this by bringing relational unity, walking in patience, walking in meekness, walking in grace. Here's a principle for you. A united, a unified church is a powerful church. Y'all believe that? A unified church is a powerful church. If you think about it, we can understand why it's so hard to maintain this thing because the church consists of all of these different peoples, all different ages, different political affiliations, different races, so many different examples, and yet we are to be a picture to the world of what unity in Christ looks like. That is why Christian unity is worth fighting for. That's why it's worth fighting for. Lastly, look at verse 4. Let's talk about the goal of unity. What's the ultimate end goal? Whew, gonna get a little happy here. So what's the ultimate end goal? Verse 4, there is but one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the goal of unity, as I said, is oneness of purpose. And in this, this one body that is reflected by uh, working in the one spirit, the one Lord, the one God who is Father of all. This church, the church, Big C, is one body. Believers may meet in many different places, speak many different languages, live in different cultures, and none of this separates them because they remained united in one body. Christ only has one body. He is the head of this thing. He is the head of the church. 
He only has this one church, and we are meeting as a local expression of that church. We are joining together with literally believers all over the world today who are naming the name of Jesus, who are meeting together in meetings just like this to worship the one true God. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. To worship him and to worship them with their expressions, to get the broken race as they are bowing and they are worshiping their one, one. But it's how to exist one thing by one spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks the truth in church to unity and theology and practice. It's one spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is God, as living and dwelling inside of you and I as believers, pushing us together, bringing us toward the purpose of making his name known, to make Jesus known, guiding us in truth, leading us in practice. The church lives in one hope, which is the eager expectation of the outworking and the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can just hold on to that one hope. That one hope that when this thing culminates, or before, before history culminates, whether I am here when that happens, when God cracks the sky, or whether I have gone on, that one day, my eager hope is that the outworking of God's plan for salvation will come in its fulfillment when God will make his dwelling upon the earth in a new earth, new creation with his people where he will be their God and they will be his people where we all will rejoice together, where sin will be no more. The reality of that one hope. One Lord. The church receives its marching orders from one authority. Jesus is the only one who has the right to the church's allegiance. He is Lord. He is the way. He is not a way. He is the way. It's a very exclusive statement, and I am unabashed to say it. He is the only way. He is the only way to God, the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Mm. That's the one to who deserves our allegiance, and the church's allegiance goes to Jesus. It's not to a program. It's not to an agenda. We have one marching order. My marching order as the pastor of this church is to lead you to him. My one marching order is to make sure we're all on the same page, that we are glorifying him, that we are doing his work, making his name known in the earth. Hmm. He is the one who has the right to our allegiance. There is one faith. The message of the church is singular. There's only one object of our faith. His name is Jesus. To confess Jesus as Lord is to express the faith of the church that we have testified since the days of the apostles and even before, to unify oneself to members of that one church, this one universal body of confessing that there is one faith, there is one truth that is guiding us, and that person, his name is Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the ends of our faith. He is the means of our faith. He is the grace that leads us to faith. There's one baptism. This is a metaphor that speaks to our identification with Christ. This one baptism that we are so identified with Jesus in our lives that we are identified with his death and his resurrection as pictured in water baptism. But this identification, we wear it. It's like it's, it becomes so becoming of us that people see Jesus. 
that we are so identified with him, that way we would live with him, that we would die with him. And it's one God and Father, the first person of the Trinity, the one and only true God who is Father of all that are in his family. He's Father of all in the church. When he says he's in all, he's talking about believers. He's the Father of all those that are in his family. Here's a principle for you before we summarize, and this is really important. Christian unity is only possible through the unified God. Christian unity is only possible through the unified God. We serve a God who is one God in three persons. There is not three gods. That was actually one of uh, an early church heresy. There are not three gods. We are not tritheists, okay? We are monotheists. We believe in one God. He happens to be three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there is but one will. There's not three wills in the Godhead. That when God does any action, it's all three members of the Godhead interacting with one divine will. Acting out the one purpose of the one true God. Okay? So what we see, and we see this trinity, this, this working of one God and three persons, and we see this uniting, unitedness that is within them, within this trinity, that's what we are called to emulate. We are called to emulate the type of unity that is something that is supernatural, that's a working of the spirit, internally infallible humans that are to reflect exactly the kind of unity that God has. This is exactly what Jesus prays for in John 17. Father, that they may be one as you and I are one. That's what he prays in the high priestly prayer in John 17. That's the stuff we're talking about. That's how important that this is. And that's only something that is supernatural, only something God can do. We need it, and we need him to be able to walk in a spirit of unity. Let's summarize this for you. So our one true statement today was that Christian unity was, is worth fighting for. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth walking in gentleness, meekness, to do all these things. It's worth keeping this spirit of unity, keeping and maintaining, preserving the spirit of unity that is exemplified in the person of God, that we would exemplify that on earth. There's a calling to unity, and we talked about some of the qualities, and we looked at the goal of unity. So how can we put this into practice? Number one is here's what I would encourage you to do. If you would join me. And that you would pray, and that you would make this a constant prayer request. I hope that you pray for your church. If you call this your home, I hope that you pray for your church and pray for it often. And I'm not asking you just to pray in general for Firewall Bible Fellowship, but I'm asking you that we would cultivate a spirit of unity, and that it would just be, that this place would truly be a place that walks out the love of God. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but I'm saying that it's very easy sometimes for things to happen where those things then end up not happening. I'm saying pray that we would persevere and we would preserve what God can only do supernaturally, that we are called to be protectors of that in that way. So would you join me and the elders in praying over your church and to pray that God would continue to give us a spirit of unity and peace? Remember, unity is not oneness of thought, but that we would all pursue the one purpose together of making Jesus' name known in the earth. Amen? Amen. And then also, I would encourage you to read John 17. 
John 17, which I just alluded to, Jesus' high priestly prayer as he prays in John 17. In verses 20 through 23, Jesus, after he has just prayed for his disciples, he prays for those who are to come, which would be you and me. And in verses 20 through 23, Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through the ministry of the apostles post his resurrection, and he prays that they would experience oneness and that this oneness that they experience would testify to the worlds in which they are in. Ladies and gentlemen, the world has no hope if the church, big C, cannot be an expression of the love and unity of God. How can we expect it to be emulated out there? They have no hope because this is a supernatural thing. If we're not working in partnership with the Holy Spirit to even see that happen in our midst, then what's the hope for them? Let's testify to the world the oneness that we have with Christ that he has with the Father. Man, that's a beautiful thing. What a beautifully intimate thing. I want that for my life, and I hope you want that for your life as well. And may that reign in this place. May it rain. So if you're here today, there is one God. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, to die upon a cross as the substitute for our sin. He was buried, but then he rose again, and he's alive today. And we serve him, and his name is Jesus. And he wants you to know him today if you don't know him. And it's very simple. Scripture just tells us all we have to do is believe. Because we're believing not in our work, but we're believing on the work of him, what he has done. So we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And when we do that, we come into this thing called the Big C Church. And then we come into hopefully this little local small C Church as an expression. And we become part of his family and part of the body. And I hope that you don't walk out of this place today without being part of that family. Let's pray. So, Lord, I thank you that we do not have to create or manufacture in some way a spirit of unity, but we need to preserve and protect that which is emulated within the Godhead. And that, as believers, you have given us the spirit internally to be able to walk out this thing, to maintain the spirit of unity. It's worth fighting for, Lord. Because a unified church is a powerful church. You want us to be one like you and the Father were one. And so, Jesus, I so desperately pray that. That our minds and our hearts, that our walk, as we walk out this Christian life, would be so in tune and lockstep with you, Lord, that as individuals and as a church, that we would reflect that we genuinely have been saved by Jesus. That our minds would not... Our minds would be renewed, Lord, that we, that we would start to see everything through the lens of, of what that means. And to be able to walk out this life with the help of your spirit and by the power of your grace to, to live in a way that would be honoring to you. So, Lord, may we live, may we breathe, may we move in all things for your glory and for your name unified together as a local expression here at Firewheel, I pray that you would help us to maintain the unity and spirit of peace. Help us to be about one purpose, and that purpose is to make you na your name known in this area that you have called us to here in Rowlett. 
to Garland and the surrounding area. Because, Lord, we love you, and we want to serve you in all ways and in all things. In Jesus' precious and holy name, and by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. We can get you all to stand. We're going to go ahead and pray our benediction over you and get you dismissed. So as we go out, may the Lord go before you to light the path and to give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. May he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. Love you all so much. You're out of Smith. We'll see you all next week. Mm.